Well, for a second, I just, I just want you to imagine that you're an Israelite and that for 400 plus years, you, your friends, your community, your family, your entire people group has been subjugated under the backbreaking oppression of one of the biggest empires in the land called Egypt. And that for hundreds of years, you found yourself not free, enslaved, forced to do incredibly difficult manual labor uh, for a nation that in many ways despises you, your God, your values. Uh, And then imagine this whole series of events that happens where God raises up this man, Moses, and enters into this powerful encounter with Pharaoh where all these miraculous signs and things happen, culminating in Pharaoh finally saying, you know what, get out of here. Take your people and go. And as Moses gathers the people of Israel together and they leave the city, perhaps leave the whole land of Egypt as a whole, they for the first time find themselves, as they start this exodus, like without shackles and in the wilderness. And just imagine for a second kind of the deep excitement and joy and sense of possibility that would be before you. But at the same time, perhaps some fear, some confusion. As you look out into the wilderness out there, maybe it's nighttime and there's nothing to light your way. Like, where do, where, where do we go? What do we do? What now? And this, there's this amazing story where uh, God appears and he manifests himself physically, visually, in their midst as this, during the daytime, as this pillar of cloud or smoke. And then at nighttime, it transforms into a pillar of fire. And so at night, this fire pillar leads them as they follow it. They're meant to follow it. And as they make camp, it stays there with them and it leads them forward again. It leads them into the darkness, the divine presence and glory of God right there for them to see and smell. Probably not touch, it's fire. I don't know. I didn't think that that one through. But to, to look at this fire and say, that is the very presence of God guiding us out into this wilderness. If you were there for that, that would surely become one of the chief sort of defining moments of your life. And it certainly did for the people of Israel as a whole. And in fact, later in Exodus, God, or later in the Torah, God gives them the command multiple times to actually set up a feast, a yearly feast, a week-long thing to just celebrate the fact that God provided for them when they were in the wilderness on their way out of Egypt. So it had many forms, but uh, eventually this thing got codified, and I want to just look at this picture. Um, so this is a picture of the temple if you were on LSD. Uh, the colors, the colors are pretty weird. I like it. Um, so actually, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's this, there's this huge scale model of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, that's what this is from. It's hyper detailed. It's huge. And it's meant to capture the old city, uh, before it was raided. Um, and this is kind of looking over the rail. You get this shot of, uh, the temple. And so it's extremely accurate. Um, and you see, this is the up on the Temple Mount, the broad temple court, and then the, the taller building there, that's uh, where the Holy of Holies is housed. 
Uh, and then if, uh, next slide, you can see this little front area here. That's called the Court of Women. And by the time that this story in John is going to take place, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the feast that God commanded them to celebrate yearly, to continue to remember the way God provided for them, the way he guided them with the very light of his presence through the wilderness. It's being celebrated by them putting these four gigantic lamps, oil lamps, in that court. And they have someone from the priestly line climb up on a ladder and they dump oil in there and they light them on fire and they're these huge lamps that are sending out this amazing light. And it's told, we can read in the Mishnah, that when this would happen on this particular night during this particular week, the light from this court could actually kind of cast a, a subtle glow across the whole city down below the Temple Mount. So the whole, this light itself would kind of just be a visual reminder to the whole city of what God had done for them, and in many ways what he continued to do for them. And so on this day, scholars believe, the day the, 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 the lamps were lit, at this place, in the court of women, Jesus walks up, verse 12, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, that's kind of an ambiguous statement, right? I am the light of the world. It's like, what, is Jesus just being cute here? Is this a, like my little sunshine kind of like, you know, we say things like that, but what, what do we really mean by it? What do you mean, Jesus? You're the light of the world. Well, I think it could involve, I think it does involve a whole lot of things. I think this is one of, light is one of the most kind of thematically rich images we find throughout the whole Bible. But there are three in particular that I think would have been especially meaningful to John and probably in the forefront of his mind as he's, you know, retelling this story. And so we want to start kind of looking at these three implications of what this statement means. We're going to just do some kind of biblical theology for a second. And then I promise we'll get done with that if, if you're bored by that. And then we're going to move into a very, very practical example uh, in Jesus' life of what it means. What it means for you and for me for everyone that's broken and hurting and vulnerable in our world. So, next slide. The first thing I want to highlight, and I, that's probably, you're probably already going here already given the lead up to this, but it, I think he, he's claiming here to be the light of divine guidance. I mean, we read this, the story we find in Exodus 13. He says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so there's just this idea that God had manifested his presence to lead them out of the Exodus for the whole period of their wilderness wanderings. But that same kind of div divine light, that guiding light of God had continued to lead them through the scriptures and through these rituals that they're commanded to do and these feasts and uh, everything else, the temple system, all of it was God at work kind of shaping them and guiding them and leading them by his metaphorical light further and further into his presence. And so it's extremely significant that on this day, in this place, at this moment, Jesus walks right in the middle where the lamps have been lit and he says, I am that light. 
Jesus is taking that role onto himself. He's saying, all these lights, the divine lights that have come before, I was behind all of them, and I'm the one that they have all have been pointing forward to. It's me. In effect, he's saying, do you want divine guidance? Do, do you want divine leadership? Do you want to be led forward in step with God? Follow me. Follow me. So a couple implications of this. I think one, Jesus is, I think here, making the claim that there is no final truth or genuine spirituality apart from him. If he is the light of divine guidance in human flesh, he's taking the place. He's saying, I am the focal point. I speak on behalf of God. You want to know the ways of God? You follow me. You want to be close to him? You come to me. You want to know what to do? You turn to me. It doesn't mean that people can't know truth in other spheres. It just means that every truth, if it's real truth, is going to be in submission to him and what he has declared, what he has done, and who he is. There may be many reflective moons, but there is only one originating sun. And Jesus says, I'm it. Okay. That's a huge claim. That's a huge claim. But he's not done. Let's keep going. So, he's going to turn to a... Well, he's, I believe there's a second thing that would be on the forefront of John's mind as he was capturing this. And we see it by how John opens up his gospel, the same book. So let's look at this. John 1, and verses 1 through 5 and then 9. Just read this with me. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, this is, we've skipped a couple verses now, but the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And I just want to stop there for a second and say, does this remind you of anything else in the Bible? Genesis 1, yes. So we've got in the beginning language. You can pull up Genesis 1. There's the in the beginning language. You've got the presence of God there in both passages. You've got a second divine figure who is somehow God and also in some way distinct from God. You've got the act of creation referenced in both. You've got a light being given to expel darkness. So John is explicitly connecting the start of his gospel to the page one of the Bible and the initial act of creation where God spoke the world into existence. So, in his gospel, John has already been urging his readers to see Jesus as someone who is both with God and himself from eternity, with God and God himself from eternity past. I mean, John 1 is making that claim. It identifies Jesus as this word who was with God and who was God. And now we're in the, the naughty ball of K-N-O-T-T-Y, not N-A-U. Uh, <laughs> the naughty ball of Trinitarian theology. What does it mean that he's with God and he is God? But whatever it means, he was in the beginning with God. And it says this, all things were made through him. The gospel writer John is claiming that Jesus 
was the agent of creation through whom everything that exists came into being through him. Through him. And then we see later, Jesus calls himself the light. He calls himself the light of men. And here we have this identified as well, that he, uh, in him was the life which was the light of men. So the idea is not that Jesus is the created light of God or something like that, but that he is the, the, the part of the Godhead through whom the creation of light happened. And with that light, all life that sprang into being. Jesus is the source of it. He's behind it. He's the creator. And then the one who has the authority to give life, who is the light, has now come into the world in human flesh. This is crazy. (laughs) This is crazy. It's wild. And I would say a couple implications here. First of all, there is no life at all apart from Jesus' creative work. I think that's an implication here. So if Jesus is identified with the creator God, the one who helped make everything that exists, every bit of life in this world, if it's true that in him was the light, which was the life of men, then every bit of human life or other life in this world is owed back to his creative generosity. It's making a foundational claim about what the universe is and what you are and what you owe your existence to. But secondarily, one of the things that John talks about all the time is this image of the fullness of life or the abundant life. And I think an implication here too is that apart from Jesus, you will not find full depth of life, full enjoyment of life, making sense of life, peace in your life, joy in your life, purpose in your life, apart from him. Life cannot be lived to the full apart from the one who designed it. And then a third one, I think an implication is that there's no eternal life apart from him. If he is the one who holds life in his hands and who bestows it, and you cut yourself off from him, you cut yourself off from the source of life eternally. Okay, there's two. One more. Can we do one more before we move on? One more. I believe this is also pointing us to the idea that Jesus is not just the light, not just the light of divine guidance, not just the light of creation, but also the light of new creation. And here's what I mean by that. So if John has just pushed our attention back to the first page of the Bible, he's now also, I think, pushing our attention to the last page of the Bible, which hadn't been written yet. But if, we turn, if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 um, will be there. Um, Revelation was written by someone named John. That's how they identify themselves. Scholars are divided on if it was this John, the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel, or it could just be someone else, some other John out there. Um, It doesn't really matter. It's very fascinating if it's the same John, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Either way, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it culminates in a picture of what life will be like The last couple chapters are what life will be like when Jesus finally does return to put all things right, when he does claim his rightful seat as king of the world, puts an end to all sin and evil and every one of their fruit, including death itself. So what's that going to look like? Revelation 21 and 22 begin to describe it. And so let's read this. Verses 22 through 25, it says, well, I should back up. So the idea in, in, in the New Testament is that 
the, the world is not going to be discarded. There's sometimes this caricature that like God is just going to burn up the world and start over with something fresh. But there's this idea that there's some continuity and some discontinuity. It's the language the Bible uses is a new heavens and a new earth that remains kind of in step with the heavens and the earth that already existed. But the key defining feature is that we have this image of the heavenly city coming down to rest on earth, whereas the division between God and humanity that was so pronounced is eliminated. God, it says in Revelation 21, he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. His presence is with them, and there is nothing separating. That's what's so amazing about the new creation. It has all kinds of other implications we can't get into. But So in this new city, it begins to describe it in 21. He says, I saw no temple in the city. And that's interesting because the temple is so important to Israel's religious life. There's no temple in this heavenly city on the new earth. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And the idea that the gates will never be shut means is just, again, that image. Like, there's no sin here. There's no reason to have a locked gate. There's no enemy to keep out. The gates are open. People can come and go. Their activity can happen freely. And the idea that there's no night there, I, I'm, I'm torn on, you know, everything in Revelation is so wrapped up in apocalyptic symbol. Uh, at, at the very minimum, night is, the idea, is like a dangerous time where people commit crimes under cover of darkness. So there's no night there. The, the light of God exposes everything. But he goes even further. He said, look, there's not even the need for a sun or a moon. The presence of God himself is the source of light. And look who the lamp is. The lamb. It's Jesus. So Jesus himself illuminates the new creation from his being with and amidst his people in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible ends with a picture of a new day where God and his people are fully reunited with Jesus himself illuminating the world. I am the light of the world, he says. So some key implications here. One, if, if the light signifies divine guidance, this is a kind of divine guidance that will be so close to God's people, that it will never be rejected, it will never be forgotten, it will never be squandered. It's not going to be Genesis 3 all over again. There's not going to be another uh, fall into sin. It's as C.S. Lewis said, sort of the beginning of, like, every, all of human history was sort of the end of the first page, and now the story begins the way it was meant to continue. A unified God with his people in a perfected world without tainting by sin and death and evil and abuse and all the things that go along with those. But secondarily, it's a spiritual illumination that eternally deepens. I mean, have you ever thought about this idea that if God is eternal, like the scriptures declare, if he's kind of limitless, if he's, um, yeah, all, of all the things, the, if he is the way the Bible describes him, it's going to take eternity future to unravel the mysteries, which means they'll never be fully unraveled. But it means day after day and year after year, deeper and deeper and deeper spiritual illumination awaits. 
It's not a boring place of stasis where everyone's just arrived. It's continual like discovery, the joy of discovery. Who is this God? What's he about? What does he have for me? Okay, we've done it. Three points. Before we move on, I think we just need to take pause. And this is something that I think Josh has already hit on in the last two weeks. I will probably hit on it again. But I just, I, I just want this to hit for a second. Because all these threads, if they are behind Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, which I, I think they are, um, it's saying something absolutely crazy. Which is that Jesus, this 30-something carpenter, who at this point in the gospel story is like a minor religious, like itinerant teacher, not particularly good looking, not particularly notable, just, it's just Jesus. Had sort of a sketchy family background. What he's claiming, and what the apostles claimed alongside him, what they continued to teach and affirm, is that this man is that. That he was present at creation. That he's the one for whom all of history culminates. That all the wisdom of God is found in him. This is a claim to divinity. This is another claim to be, that he's claiming to be God. And I think for all of us, like whether you follow Jesus or whether you're you know, not interested in Jesus at all or somewhere in between... Like, we all have this temptation because, I I don't know, it's common today to read something like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. Read that and go, oh man, this is good stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, I think most people would say, yeah, people just live like that. The world would be a better place. Love your enemy, humility, care for the downtrodden. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful values. But that appreciation for his moral teaching is not the same thing as bending the knee to his lordship. It's not the same thing as recognizing him as who he's claiming to be, which is God himself in the flesh come to be with his people. It's not the same thing as worship. And it's not saving. And so I could try to say it better than C.S. Lewis, but it's always a bad game when you try to get into that. So let's let's just quote him. Um, he takes this, he takes this idea, something like this very claim we're, we're uh, evaluating, and, and he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, look, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. (laughs) I love Lewis. He's so awesome. Or, Or else he would be the devil of hell. And he means that very seriously. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or even something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. And then Lewis goes on a little bit later. He says, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. Consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's good. I'll preach. So this is the claim that Jesus is making. And as we continue the series, he's going to make more claims like this. Where he's, he's closing the doors to this sort of neutral, like, yeah, I, I think Jesus is cool. Because if he's wrong about this stuff, he's a complete fool. What man could claim to be the agent of creation? And if he's willfully deceiving people, he's satanic. Or he might be God. Or he might be God. So, I just want everyone in this room, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, whether you're kind of keeping him at arm's length but interested, or whether you're just like, ah, I don't care about any of this stuff. Like, we just all need to sit under the weight of this is what he's claiming, and let's at least give him the dignity of being able to make shocking claims and not try to downplay them. If he's wrong about this, he's not worth our worship. If he's right about it, he's worth everything. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says, follow me and find life. What do you say? Well, chapter 8 moves on. And it turns into this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees about where do you get the authority to say these kinds of things? They understand what he's, what he's saying and they're deeply offended. They start challenging him. And it builds up to this passage, the one we started the series with, that culminates in Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. Another explicit claim, I am who I am. I am God incarnate. And then they try to kill him. They pick up their stones and he gets away. So that's chapter 8. We have to skip over it for time right now. But chapter 9 needs to be read with this 8-12 verse. Because it's going to do something really important, which is it's going to take these lofty ideas. Okay, Jesus is the light of the world. There's all these big theological concepts. And it's going to show us what happens when that God, like when this Jesus, this light of the world, this light of creation, what happens when he comes in contact with people? What happens when he comes in contact especially with the broken and the vulnerable and the sinful? Is that good news or is that bad news for this person to come face to face with this, this God? Um, so here we go. Let's read it. Uh, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we'll pause there for a sec, because we just can't sail over this. Like, the, the disciples had not learned the lesson of the book of Job from our Old Testament. Uh, there's so many people just naturally gravitate to this idea that if deep suffering falls on you, if, if you've experienced real suffering, it must mean you've done something wrong. And they asked the question, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? It's got to be somebody. For some reason, we all think the world operates in this clockwork, karmic system where you do certain things and certain other things happen. And, and the Bible, the, the Christian worldview, just rejects that premise outright. 
It just rejects it. There are various world religions today, especially Hinduism with its literal karma system, certain forms of Buddhism, many types of New Age mysticism. They, they have this idea even of reincarnation, where if someone was born, say, with an illness, misfortune of some kind, man, they must have really messed up in their past life. And that's why they're suffering. And the really nasty forms of this stuff say, so I better not help them, or else I'm going to be, I'm going to have the guilt on my hands, because they're getting what they deserve, cosmically. And Jesus just thoroughly rejects this. He rejects it outright, here. He rejects it by example, because him is the only perfect person, God made flesh, the only man without sin. He suffered deeply and pervasively, and finally, by going to death on the cross, suffering a torture as a criminal. We always want an answer to the why question when suffering hits us. And I know in this room, like, there are people with deep suffering, probably right now, that you're in the midst of. And you want the answer to why. But we rarely get it. We rarely get it. But what we are told clearly is that the reason suffering happens is not because God is vindictive. Be very clear about that. God is not a cosmic bully needing to get at you by throwing suffering down. And more than that, Jesus has, God has fully entered into the suffering himself in the person of Jesus. He is not some distant, detached deity looking down at us like looking at ants in an anthill. He has entered in the story. He's suffered alongside us. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us, and that's good news. Whatever, whatever the answers are, maybe we'll get them in eternity. We can trust him. We can trust him because he's in it with us. So, in this case, Jesus doesn't answer the why, but he says, whatever the reason, what needs to happen is that the works of God need to be displayed here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night's coming when no one can work. So Jesus is going to take this opportunity of this man born blind, and he's going to perform a miraculous sign of who he is that's going to be both for this man's benefit and for the community's benefit. And notice again, what does he say here? As long as I am in the world, again, I am the light of the world. There's that phrase again. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go! Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus immediately gets to work healing the blind man's vision. And this man was born blind. No one had ever heard of a miracle like this. Later in the chapter, they're going to be, the Pharisees are questioning this man. And they're like, how, how did this happen? What's going on? He's like, I don't know. In fact, we all know no one has ever heard of something like this being healed. It makes me think, my father-in-law, he was uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's nine years ago. He passed away this past year. Uh, and just, just that is such a heavy thing to be thinking. How do you pray in response to Alzheimer's? We wanted to pray for healing. We did pray for healing. 
We, I, think, I think I believe Jesus could heal that. He's sovereign over that. And yet I know of nobody ever being miraculously healed from late-stage Alzheimer's. And I don't think God owes me. I know he's not my cosmic vending machine. But these are the kinds of things that just really begin to knot you up and test. Like, wow, what do I really think? How powerful do I really think God is? So this is maybe one of those. Notice the man didn't say anything to Jesus. The man didn't approach Jesus to heal him. Maybe this man felt hopeless. It's like, I was born blind. Nobody gets healed from this. Perhaps he didn't even know Jesus was in the vicinity. He couldn't see him. What does Jesus do? He comes over to the man and he heals. And notice, the man didn't do a single thing, did he? Sure, he was obedient to go and wash his, wash his eyes off, but in, in terms of starting this interaction, the man was sitting there in his ignorance. Jesus comes over without requirement, without condition, not having to do a thing. Jesus engages him and heals him and opens his eyes. You know what we call that in theology? Grace just an act of loving grace towards someone who didn't even know another way was possible. So, do you get it? You see what's happening here? Yes, we've got a story, a, a story of a real sincere healing of physical blindness. This is a real story. I believe it really happened. But and it's a significant miracle, one that had never been heard of amongst this community. But it points to the larger reality. It's tied into this idea that Jesus is the light. He's the light who can open the eyes of the blind. This passage is about the healing of the physical ailment, but it's much more deeply about the healing of spiritual blindness. Jesus is the light for the blind. And so... Over the next 20 verses, we don't have time to read them. I'd encourage, this story is amazing. You should go read this on your own. But for the next 20 verses, the, what happens is the man goes, and the story begins to spread. And they're like, hey, this is the guy that's been born blind, begging in the same place our whole lives. Now he sees. That's interesting. What's going on? And so they start to ask him, and, he's like, and his answers begin with, like, I don't know. I was just healed. And then they bring in the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, who did this? How, how did this happen? He says, it was this man, Jesus. And then they continue to question him. And then they're, they're like, think something's fishy. So they go and get the man's parents. And like, okay, what's really going on here? Tell us. And they're like, we don't know. We just know he was blind. Now he sees. And the thing continues to build and build. And then finally they're asking him, the man, to reject Jesus as being from God. And the man essentially says, he could not do this if he weren't, if he weren't from God. And they banish him from the synagogue. So that's the next 20 verses. So we pick back up in verse 35. So Jesus heard they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who, may, who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? 
Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And that's the end of the story. Kind of an enigmatic little ending there. But we see in these verses two responses. So Jesus has acted. He's acted powerfully. He's acted in a way that can't be waved away or ignored. And we see two responses. First, we see the Pharisees. We see an increasing demonstration of physical blindness. At first, they come to the man, and they're curious, like, well, what happened? Tell us about this. But as the man becomes more and more evident that it was adamant that Jesus did this thing, and as he's convinced that it was from God, uh, they get more and more angry, and they get more and more defensive, they get more and more accusatory, and eventually they try to cut him off from the very worship of God at the synagogue. I love Tim Keller on this, so I'll just have to quote him. He says, The point of this story, in that last verse there, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Keller says, The deepest kind of blindness is blindness to your own blindness. There's no blindness deeper than that. And his illustration was, look, if you have an, let's say, take an eye ailment. Your eyes are messed up. The only thing that guarantees you're not going to get better is if you deny that you have it and refuse to go to the doctor. If you just say, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's not an issue. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with my eyes. That's the only surefire way you know you're not going to find healing. If you would just, you know, in the real world, who knows if you'll find healing or not, but there may be some procedure, there may be some drug, there may be this, there may be that, maybe some therapy. Uh, the only way to know for certain that you are not going to find your sight is to not know that you're blind and to refuse help. The deepest kind of blindness is blindness that you're blind to, and this is also the deepest kind of spiritual blindness. The Pharisees, believing themselves so close to God, believing themselves to have performed just enough to earn his favor, believing themselves on the right side of every one of these interactions, turns out they are deeply spiritually blind, though they believe that they see. Contrast that with the healed man. With him, we see an increasing demonstration of spiritual sight. So we didn't get to look at the verses, but, but in the passage, it starts with 9-11, the man who is called Jesus. They say, who did this? The man called Jesus. It's kind of impersonal. Verse 17, they ask him again. He says, he's a prophet. Verse 25, he says, they say, how could this, you know, isn't this man a sinner? How could he do this? He says, I don't know if he's, I don't think he's a sinner or he couldn't have done this. Verse 33, he then assumes that the man is from God. He says, the man, you know, he couldn't do this if he weren't from God. Verse 36, or no, 38, he calls him Lord. And then right after, coming to know that he is the Son of Man, the prophesied one, he falls down and worships. He falls down and worships. Jesus had restored not only this man's physical sight, but his spiritual sight. And it wasn't the result of the man becoming a, a, overnight a morally upright person. Who knows the character of this man? It wasn't a result of him finally dealing with all his sin. It wasn't a result of him going and getting ritually pure. It wasn't the result of him doing anything. He didn't even know that Jesus was in his midst, but Jesus came over and healed him. 
And he responded, eventually, with worship. So this brings us to our last point. I think we should just highlight, Jesus is the light of saving grace. And that's implicit in all those other ones. Divine guidance is often to salvation, either from a physical circumstance or a spiritual circumstance. But Jesus shows himself to be the light of grace that isn't earned, it can't be earned. It's the Jesus who has already done everything. He's done 100% of the work to come and to bring sight and to bring healing and to bring wholeness and to bring peace and to bring joy and to bring love. And he offers it freely to everyone. And those with the ears to hear will listen. And they'll say yes. And like this man, they'll throw themselves at his feet. And they might not have it all figured out. Who knows what this guy was actually thinking. There's no way he knew, okay, this is Jesus of the Trinity at this point. Said, I believe. Let me worship. There is no cure for spiritual blindness or guilt of sin apart from him. And a quick test to know if you're spiritually blind is this. I'm stealing this from Keller too. Keller said, do you remember the moment when you first recognized your own spiritual blindness? If you're a Christian in this room, there should have been a moment. Maybe it was as a child. Maybe it was in childhood. Maybe it was five years ago. Maybe it was last week. But where you finally could see, oh man, I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he'd done. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know I couldn't see. I didn't know what I needed. And Jesus showed up. If you have that story, this morning, may that push you deeply toward worship, toward appreciation that he showed his grace to you. He overcame every barrier to open your eyes and to bring you into the fold of his family for eternity. But if that's not you, if you've never had that moment, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and you're like, I I don't think I've ever been spiritually blind. That's scary. Maybe now is the moment to see, man, maybe I am. Maybe I have been. But in either case, you know, what the, you know what the answer is? It's him. And I'm just reminded again of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross. Remember, remember what Jesus experienced on the cross? The sky darkens. This image of the opposite of light. Almost like spiritual blindness. He cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off relationally from God the Father. He experiences the full weight of separation and distance from God that sin deserves. And he's killed in our place. And then he raises from the dead and he offers us his life and his righteousness. He took our blindness into himself and he offers us his sight. So if you've never made that exchange, if you've never thrown yourself at the feet of Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, show me how to follow you. I believe there's life where you lead. May today be the day. And if you've done that, may today be a time of deep worship, fresh worship. As we sing praise to the one who's opened our eyes and given us his light to see. Amen? Let's pray.